0: Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're awfully glad that you're here today, though, and we invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians in chapter number 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn to page one. Fifty-one in the back part, and you would be at Ephesians chapter 2. We've been doing this fall a series that we've entitled Amazing Grace. We have given a definition to grace, and that is God's generous, undeserved goodness. It is a free, undeserved gift. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on what we promise. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on our merit. It is unearned, undeserved, unmerited and that is why it is amazing. What is so interesting, though, is that grace is at times misunderstood, and frequently it is underappreciated, but grace is God's greatest legacy. It's what distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other religious system. And what is really fascinating about grace is, frankly, when an individual first fully understands it, it is initially shocking to them. And I simply want to say that it is likely today that some of you are going to be shocked. Some of us that have come here today, God is calling into a restored relationship with Him. He is ready to forgive you. He is ready to change you from the inside out. And for all of us, as we spend time in God's Word today, it will be a humbling, worshipful experience as our souls are refreshed by the amazing grace of God. We've opened to Ephesians 2. We've read these verses before, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we're right in the middle of what we have entitled The Amazing Grace of Salvation. Last week, we looked at part number one. We looked at grace and the law. We saw that the law is there to awaken our sinfulness and to direct us to our need for a rescuer. And then we looked at grace and works. We said the natural response when you have done something wrong is that you want to do something to make it right. We want to find a way for our good to outweigh our bad, to accumulate enough good deeds to be pleasing to God. But God has ruled on that subject. And we looked at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 and repeated several times there, a man is not justified by works of the law. It's not by works of the law. It's not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And we ended last time with the question, if it's not by works, how is it then? And inside that same verse, we have three points of emphasis. It's through faith in Christ Jesus those who have believed in Christ Jesus. It's by faith in Christ. So we come to part number two of the amazing grace of salvation today. And of course, we have a plan. We're going to be looking at four things today. Number one, we're going to look at the fact that salvation comes by grace through faith. Secondly, we're going to look at the fact that grace salvation is a free gift. We're thirdly going to look at the fact that faith is a response and not a work, and then we're going to end this morning with an illustration of the grace heart of God. This is going to be exciting stuff. Let's begin by looking at the fact that salvation comes by grace through faith. You see, the exciting thing is, men and women, the good news is that the work has been done to bring us back into relationship with God. It was done by Christ on the cross, and repeatedly we see that in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15:3 says that Christ died for our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says, God made him, the one who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Our sin got put on him. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 says that he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. One of the key statements of the seven that Jesus made from the cross was the statement, it is finished. Literally, it means it is paid in full. He paid the price and the provision of salvation by Jesus on the cross is due to God's generous, undeserved goodness. But as we have seen, it is by grace, and then it comes a key phrase, through faith. We see that in Ephesians 2, 8. By grace through faith. And I want you to understand, this was the clear message of the early church. Let's go back into the history of the church. A couple of books to the right, to the book of Acts, uh, or rather to the left. You don't want to go to the right. You want to go to the left a couple of books, to Acts chapter 10. And I want us to see in Acts chapter 10, this was the very clear message of the early church. And in Acts chapter 10, we have Peter preaching a message. And we're going to look at at, uh, verses 38 to 43. So, Acts 10 38, you have Paul, or rather Peter preaching, and he says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And then he goes on to say in verse 39, the end of the verse, they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Verse 40, and God raised him up on the third day. And then you'll notice verse 42. He ordered us to preach to the people this message. Verse 43, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, notice the next phrase here, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That was the message of the early church. Remember the story of the Philippian jailer we talked about last week in Acts chapter 16? He asked the question, what must I?" What was the question? What must I do? And the answer back was, believe in the Lord Jesus. There are no additional works to do. There's no self-improvement, to achieve. We've talked about John Newton, who was the composer of the the famous song, Amazing Grace. And when Newton got a lot older, and like some of us who are getting older, you begin to have your memory fade. And he was acknowledging that his memory was fading. But he did say this. He said, I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. What is even more amazing is the second thing we want to look at today, and that is that grace salvation is a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it very clearly. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And throughout the pages of the New Testament, that is one of the key words, gift, gift gift. It appears over and over again. For example, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 24, it talks about being justified as a gift by His grace. Romans 6, 23b talks about the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, a gift can only be a gift if it's free. It's not free, it's it's not a gift. It's something that we earned in some way. And so we see this word, gift, 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 gift appearing. And then another word that keeps appearing related to this is the idea of free, or we receive this freely from God. Romans 3.24 talks about being justified, being declared righteous by God freely, by his grace, through the redemption found in Christ Jesus. And then, one of the very last verses of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. It says, let the one who is thirsty come. That's not talking about physical thirst here. This is talking about the spiritual thirst that we have as human beings. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life. And then what's that last phrase? Without cost. Without cost. That's amazing grace. You would imagine for a moment that you are destitute, you are a street person, you're living on the street, you don't have a place to stay, you don't have clothes, you have nothing, you have no job, you have no home, all you have are some pennies in your pocket. And you walk past the finest restaurant in town. And so you stop because you really have had nothing to eat of any significance and you start staring through the window at the various tables and the food that is laid out there and people are eating these incredibly elegant meals, and you think, if only, if only I could have a meal like that, and yet you, you stand there helpless and hopeless, you know, I can't, I can't go into that kind of a restaurant. I can't experience that kind of an elegant meal. And then you spy the head waiter who's on his way out the door, and you know he's coming to tell you, look, hey, move on. We don't want you standing in front of the window, but with warmth and compassion. He says, I want you to come in. We have prepared the finest entree that we have for you. I want you to come in, and I want you to feast on it. And you know, your reaction would be to just reach into your pocket for the few coins that you have, and as you start to do that, he says, no. No. This meal is on the owner. He spotted you from the window. He's fully aware that you cannot pay the price. He's offering to you this elegant meal freely. Come and eat it. Absolutely thoroughly, through and through, free." See, men and women, that's what God does in salvation. And when many people first realize, it's just shocking to them. You know, the response is, surely not. I mean, I i must need to do something to earn this. And a lot of people, even when it comes to salvation, say, well, I need to add my part, my pennies to his grace. Uh, they begin to get the idea that grace somehow needs some assistance, that, that it's, it's Christ's work, maybe 95%, maybe 96%, maybe 97%, but I need to add in my small percentage, my 5%, my, my 1%. I need to help out a little bit. I need to commit myself to maybe saying a whole bunch of prayers or I need to engage in some kind of a sacrament. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe it's penance. Maybe it's being confirmed. But here's the problem with that thinking that so many people have. When you add even some small percentage of works to grace, a spiritual chemical reaction takes place that negates grace altogether. Fully voids it. I've got to show you the passage. We've referred to it previously. Turn to your left several books again to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Romans, chapter 11. And verse 6. I want you to see this. In fact, if you haven't marked this verse in your Bible, you need to do it. It is vitally critical to understand. Romans 11:6 It says if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace is no longer grace see the moment that you add something that we do even if it's a small percentage the spiritual chemical reaction takes place and it negates and voids grace altogether now, sometimes when you're teaching this from the Bible, people will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's just cheap grace. That's just cheap grace. You're talking about just getting a free gift. Yes, it is freely given to us as a gift, but I would want to say it's not cheap because it costs Jesus his life. Other people will come along and say, well, what you're teaching is is easy believism, easy believism. And sometimes what they mean is that, that, ah, you just believe something doesn't care what you do after that. I hate that phrase, easy believism. What is there easy about believing in this? I I really want to recommend a book by Charles Bing that he wrote on grace called Simply by Grace. But here's what he said. I, I love this. He says... It's not easy to believe that I am a sinner who deserves to be eternally separated from God. not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to believe that I can do nothing to save myself from eternal condemnation. It's not easy to believe that God became a man, lived the perfect life, was killed anyway, and then rose from the dead. It's not easy to believe that a life given 2,000 years ago will provide a pavement for my sins today. And he goes on to say, it's not easy to believe that God loves me so much and is so generous that he will give me eternal life as a free gift. And I might add, it's not easy to place your total trust for your eternal destiny in someone you've never seen physically not easy to do that. Remember what Jesus said to his disciple Thomas, who is known as Thomas the Doubter? He said to Thomas, you have seen and have believed. Blessed are those who do not see me yet believe anyway. Grace is God's greatest legacy. That's why we call it amazing grace. Now, as we said, there's a third thing we wanted to look at today, and that is that faith is a response, not a work. Faith is a response, not a work. Remember, I was telling you about the, the verses I had memorized when Dean Hatfield came to see me so many years ago, and, and the one I repeated back to him was John 3.16. I saw it on a sign, at a football game, even yesterday. God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, when the Bible talks about faith and it talks about believing, it's more than some sort of a casual belief about i I had sort of a casual belief about Jesus when I was even younger. What it really means is, is that... We trust in something, that we entrust ourselves to something. That's what believing in Him means. It means that I choose not to trust in my good deeds, my add ons to grace, but what I choose to do is to trust in and rest in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that I choose to believe in and to trust in and entrust myself to God's gift of unmerited favor when he died for me and he earned salvation. See, faith is not a work. It's not a work. And it's something, though, that works with grace. Romans 4.16, a great verse on this says, for this reason it is by faith, in order that, here comes the key phrase, it may be in accord with grace. Because again, if you take a work and you add it to grace, what does Romans eleven six 6 say? You void the whole thing out. Faith is not a work. It's just a response of trust in something. And our faith in Jesus Christ keeps grace, grace so very important to understand all of that. And I'll tell you, that's that's some amazing stuff we've looked at already. We could just go home right now and we'd be going, God is amazing. God is totally amazing. But there's a fourth thing that I wanted to do today, and that was an illustration of the grace heart of God just to put some flesh on this for us. And I was thinking, you know, if we were going to illustrate the grace heart of God, there's a number of different ways that we could illustrate the grace heart of God. Uh, We could look at the story of, of David. David and Bathsheba and Uriah and from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and just think about the grace heart of God with David and the things that he did and how God still chose to use him and to make him king over Israel and the very line of the Messiah who would come one day. I was thinking if we're going to do an illustration of the grace heart of God, we could choose the Samaritan woman from the Gospel of John chapter number 4. you remember the woman who had been through five husbands and was living with a sixth man, the kind of person that most people would have just sort of pushed aside, and Jesus doesn't do that, and he talks with her about giving her living water, and she, in her heart, chooses to drink that water, that would be a great illustration of the grace heart of God. Or we could, to maybe take the life of Saul and Paul, which he later became. And we can read about him in Acts chapter 9 and 1 Timothy chapter 1, the the guy who was the former blasphemer and and the persecutor and the, the violent person against the name of Jesus Christ. And yet after he came face to face with Jesus, he said, the grace of the Lord in my life was more than abundant to make up for all of that. All of those things would be worthy illustrations of the grace heart of God but it's not the one that I have chosen. The one I have chosen is one that we might not have normally thought of. It's a guy by the name of Levi. And Levi was a a tax collector in the times of the Roman occupation of Israel. He was named Levi most likely because he came from the tribe of Levi. You might remember that Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. And in the Old Testament, at the time of the Exodus, there was this episode in Israel with the golden calf. And 11 of the tribes went off to worship the golden calf. Only one tribe remained faithful. That was the tribe of Levi. And God, as a reward for that, said to the tribe of Levi, you will become the priestly tribe of God. And it was the Levites who became the priests, the attendants in God's temple. It was the Levites who would perform sacrifices in the temple. Now, the IRS is not exactly popular in our day. Everybody a big, giant fan of the IRS? Didn't think so. But we need to understand that to function as a tax collector, as a Jew, under Roman rule, was the epitome of greed. You see, someone who was a Jew and who was a tax collector was betraying the people of Israel because they were on the payroll of the Romans And the second reason why it was the epitome of greed is that they were gouging the people of Israel financially. See, what would happen is that Rome would require a tax quota of individuals, but they granted authority to the tax collector to charge whatever they wanted. And so they would therefore pocket the difference. They weren't on salary, they just pocketed the difference of what they charged and what Rome wanted. And so what a tax collector would do in that day is they would would push to maximize their profit as much as they could, but they would stop short of totally just angering people so that they'd end up with a knife in their back in a dark corner somewhere. They didn't want to go that far. But they were always pushing the limit. Another thing about tax collectors in the day is that most frequently, in order to become one, you had to buy the office from a predecessor who was retiring. That's the way that it worked. And if you lived in Israel, the only asset that really you would have under the Romans was your family property, which was a piece of the promised land that God had given to your family. So in order to become a tax collector, you would take that piece of the promised land cash it out, and you could buy your way into the office of being a tax collector. See, tax collectors were triple traitors. They betrayed the people, they betrayed their heritage, and they betrayed their God. For any Jew to be a tax collector was a bad thing. But for there to be a tax collector from the tribe of Levi, a Levite, it was incredibly appalling. And I have no doubt that Levi got the message. Levi knew how others felt. He'd heard their snide comments. He'd had those twinges of guilt every time he was making his collections. I imagine that he likely rationalized it all. He probably said things like, well, God has no interest in me. I I certainly have nothing to offer him in terms of good works. Might as well sell out to be wealthy. To eat, drink, and be merry. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number two. Because in a city called Capernaum, Levi, the tax collector, crosses paths with Jesus. We won't take time to read it, but in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, you have the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. You can read that account through. They bring this paralytic to Jesus and they want to see if he would be healed. First thing Jesus does, he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Woo! The people go. How can Jesus say that only God can do that? Only God can forgive sins. Of course he eventually does heal the paralytic. But you know Capernaum wasn't a very big place. And the word no doubt got out about this guy named Jesus who went around telling people their sins were forgiven. And you wonder what Levi was thinking. He was thinking, well, I wonder if I ought to go check. No. He never dreamed that in a million years, this young teacher would be interested in him. But in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, it says, as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And Jesus said to Levi, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And he became one of the inner circle. Why did Jesus do that? Because of the amazing grace of God, his generous, undeserved goodness. Of course, you know, the story is that he changed his name to Matthew, and he was one that many had said of him, he's unredeemable, but God's grace transformed his life, and he became privileged to write what is the first gospel in our Bible, the gospel of Matthew. I want you to turn to the gospel of Matthew with me, chapter number one. Levi was was marked forever by the grace heart of God. He never got over it. In fact, it gave him a unique, from all of those disciples, somewhat of a unique view of the grace of God. And in Matthew 1, we have the the genealogy of Jesus. If you know anything about the whole thrust of the gospel of Matthew, it's, it's really an argument for the fact that Jesus indeed was the Jewish Messiah that had been promised, and part of the reason for uh, the genealogy here is to verify Jesus' pedigree as Messiah, and you'll, you'll know that he he traces his pedigree all the way back to Abraham. And there's a normal thing when you did a genealogy, you would trace you know, the father and then the son and so forth. In fact, if you go to the the parallel genealogy in Luke chapter 3, you'll see that's exactly what happens there. But what's fascinating to me are the addendums that are added here in the genealogy by Levi or Matthew. See, you just had an eye for the grace of God. And even in giving a genealogy, you see, he had to insert some things about the amazing grace of God. You'll notice it starts off with a record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But I want you to see what he says in verse 3, or rather verse 2. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and then he adds, and his brothers. Oh, we were there not long ago. He's reminding everyone of the evil, greedy plot that was led by Judah, that greedy schemer. And yet here you are in the genealogy of the Messiah. He's saying God's grace was at work. God's grace was greater than the things that Judah and his brothers did. And then in verse 3 it says, Judah was the father of of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Remember that part of the story? Why does he bring that up? It's a reminder of God's grace. You remember the deception and the abandonment that had happened between Judah and Tamar and how she had seduced him and she became pregnant as an unmarried woman, both of them being manipulators and deceivers, yet God's grace was at work. God's grace is greater than all of those things. In verse 5, it says, Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Why does he throw that in there? He's reminding us of the story that occurred at Jericho. You remember that Rahab was a non Jewish person, she was a prostitute. Yet she ends up in the messianic line. You see, God's grace was at work even in that situation. His grace was greater than the blotches in her life. Verse 5. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. See, it's not every wife that's being mentioned here. It's isolated ones. You remember Ruth. She had been an idol-worshipping Moabite who'd experienced a tragic widowhood in her life. But God's grace was at work. God's grace was greater than her background. Look at verse 6. Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Good gracious, what is that doing in here? You remember the story of the startling beauty, and the shocking scandal, and the fatal cover-up that followed, and how David was an adulterer and a murderer Remember, mercy means that God withholds what we deserve to receive. Grace means we receive what we do not deserve. God's grace was at work. and God's grace was greater. Then in verse 11, it says, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah is also known as Jehoiachin, He was a wicked king in the history of Israel, and due to his rebellion, he led the nation into an era of darkness. He was rebellious and he misguided those he'd been called to lead, but God's grace was at work. God's grace was greater than all those things. You see, God takes flawed people And he changes them, and Levi understood that, Matthew understood that, and he will use them. Grace is never earned. It's graciously granted out of the richness of God's goodness. And as I said, God is calling some of us to a restored relationship. He is ready to forgive you. He's ready to change you from the inside out. His grace is greater than any circumstance in your life, whatever it may be. There's a hymn called Marvelous Grace, and the words of it go like this. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace that is greater than all our sin, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. And if you've never trusted in Christ as your rescuer from sin and judgment, you need to come to him with an open hand ready to receive. It's not about what you've achieved. It's about what you have received. Bow with me in prayer if you would. Father, we want to especially pray for any of who may be listening today and hearing us today. Who don't know you personally, maybe thought there was no hope for someone like them, or the things that have happened in their life, grace couldn't overcome it. May they realize that it can, and that Jesus died for them, and Jesus rose again for them, and that he offers a free gift of salvation if we will just simply trust in it, rest in it, count on it. And I would encourage you, if you've never done that, it's really an eternal decision that one makes. That even right at this very moment, you don't have to do anything magical. You don't have to put your hands up. You don't have to spin around. You don't have to come anywhere. You don't have to do anything. But in your heart, you're saying to God, it's not what I've done. It's what Jesus has done for me. And I want to believe and count on that. Would you do that right now? Just let them know that right now in the quiet of your heart. Please, I plead with you. Do that. It's a decision you will never regret, ever. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, the amazing grace of salvation. None of us deserved it. All of us are humbled by it. We thank you that it means a changed heart, a changed life. The greatest thing in all of the world is to know that you are forgiven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.